0: and welcome to Dead for Filth. I'm your host, Michael Verratti, and this is the podcast for all things queer horror and beyond. On today's episode, I'm excited to welcome to the show a guest who turned the cinematic mission statement of glamour first, glamour last, glamour always into a cosmic proclamation that helped impact a whole generation of queer performers. As a filmmaker, he took drag queens on a galactic adventure with the celebrated cult hit Vegas in Space and paid homage to his silver screen loves with shorts like Roller Coaster to Hell and Joan Crawford, Portrait of a Movie Star. A fixture of the revolutionary dragon performance scene of San Francisco, he wrote, directed, and curated stage shows like Nightclub of the Living Dead and a celebrated production of The Bad Seed. A filmmaker, playwright, and true legend, please welcome Philip R. Ford. Hi, Michael. Thanks so much
1: for inviting me to be here today.
0: Thank you for being here, Philip. It is long overdue. Uh, As people who uh, listen to me and, and, and know what I'm up to, I'm a huge fan of you and your work, and I just adore you, so I'm excited
1: to have you here. Well, thank you. I adore you, too.
0: Well, why don't we kick the show off the same way I start every show with the same first question I ask every guest, and it is uh, simply this. Why horror? And you can interpret that however you want, uh, but, you know, what's your relationship with horror? Why
1: do you think horror draws audiences, but why horror? But what- well, my relationship to horror, it was my first, really, love of cinema. Um, my I was in fifth grade in 1972, and uh, uh, a little boy who later became uh, my best friend in junior high school, Brian Cunio, walked up to me in my fifth grade class and dropped on my desk to show me his issue of Famous Monsters of Filmland, which was the Frogs issue, the Ray Milland film with a giant frog with a hand coming out. Right. And I, I, I became great friends with Brian, and we loved horror films. And we talked about making films, but we, we watched Creature Features every night. I came from a rather, no, um, well, I wouldn't say trouble. I came from a troubled household, and he had what was the most normal house in the world. I grew up in a working-class area of a very, very wealthy community. So he had his own creek, you know, at his ranch house. Oh, my. Uh, so we would spend Saturday nights over there watching Creature Features, and I subscribed to Famous Monsters and got every— issue until like 75, 76. When I got a little too old for it, but um, we had creature features and I learned so much. And back then I went to any movie. My parents were very, very uh, big on going to the movies. They didn't believe in the rating system. So uh, I actually saw the Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the drive-in with my father. Oh, wow. When I was Whenever that came out, you know, 73, 74. So we went to lots of movies. And like my mother would just take me to the theater for his r rated and say, I'm not going in. <laughs> Here, he has my permission. So I saw lots and lots and lots and lots of movies, horror and otherwise. And that led me to want to learn about how films are made, which I could touch upon. But it got me interested in films, horror films in particular. I loved all the, the classics, you know, going back to the 20s. I mm-hmm. mean, I remember going to a, a very early famous monsters convention uh in the early 70s in san francisco at the galleria design center where my senior prom was held many years later and Forrest j ackerman was there at your senior prom no, no. <laughs> <laughs> he should have been uh Forrest j ackerman was at the event and i got his autograph i remember on the his um little paperback of the franken science monster all right, and yeah. they showed Metropolis on a 16 millimeter print, because back then this was pre-video. You had to look for repertory cinemas to go find films. Right. In San Francisco. I grew up in the suburbs of San Francisco. I'll look now at the um, I go to the library sometimes and look at the newspapers on microfilm from the 70s. What was playing at this theater? How much was an apartment in the marina? How much? Was a job downtown, paying. Right. And if you look at the movie listings from 1975, there were probably 20 or 30 repertory cinemas working all the time, uh, mostly showing things from the Golden Age of Hollywood. Your Mae West, your Charlie Chaplin, your uh, you know whatever happened to Baby Jane. But there were some horror classics as well. So it was a period before the VCR when you had to go out and look and work to find classic films, and that's what I did. And I, I want to talk a little bit about your
0: your sort of genesis from being a film fan to a filmmaker, because I know you started making films as early as, what, almost 15 years old? Uh, yeah. But bef- before we dig into that a little bit, I sort of want to leap ahead to the fact that uh, you're in L.A. right now because last night, as of this recording, they uh, screened a short of yours called Joan Crawford, Portrait of a Movie Star,
1: that... Uh, you made in the 80s. In the year 1980, right. the spring of 1980.
0: And what I think was really great was, uh, and you hadn't seen it since around since
1: We around showed then. it a few times. It went into a box around 1982, 83, so I haven't seen it in well over 35 years. And what I
0: really thought was striking about it was how reverential to film it is. And specifically to Joan Crawford, of course, but like hearing you tell this story about how you just kind of kept intaking movies, that influence on you must have been so profound that I can just see uh, sort of this enamorment of of cinema. So that must have been with you from when you first started engaging with film.
1: Yes, I started at 12 and I shared with you my my passion for the um, um, uh, horror film, but... I We had the World Book Encyclopedia that my daddy bought when the man came to the door selling encyclopedias, the 1972 edition, and I read the whole thing. I didn't have a lot of friends and didn't like to go out. So there was a section on movies and how movies were made, and I remember very clearly reading it about the the terms like pre-production and post-production and location. I was 11 or 12, and I said, I want to be a movie director. So that triggered me reading a lot about films. I'd go to the school library and read all the reviews um, of um, from you know Time Magazine. I, I started reading Pauline Kael. Uh, this was like twelve or thirteen. And remember, this was the er- golden age of cinema. It was like 72, 73, 74, 75. So there, there were mind blowing films coming out then. You know, the whole um, uh, Easy Rider, Raging Bulls generation was happening. So the horror films were part of it. But then I was also so interested in, of course, the current films today. I love Scorsese. I saw The Godfather on TV and they advertised a commercial for The Godfather Part Two, And I said, oh, mom, we have to go. And I remember going to the old Tamalpais Theater in San Anselmo. But in terms of the classic cinema, and Joan Crawford, Portrait of a Movie Star. The thing to remember is the film Mommy Dearest hadn't come out yet. That came out a few years later, perhaps 1982, 81. Right. So that really changed the image of Joan Crawford and the, the legacy and the legend and turned her into much more of a known quantity. Uh, uh, I would not want to say camp icon. That's a minimal way of describing what she is for a generation of gays. Right. So this was before the movie had come out. The book had come out. Um, and I, of course, I read the book and then I read the the, the famous Bob Thomas biography of Joan Crawford. And I was just fascinated by her whole arc and how her life story covered the whole history of cinema from, from 1925. She was one of the first um, uh, contract players signed to MGM. She came to um, L.A. and came off the train here in Pasadena on January 1st, 1925, the day MGM an amalgamation of uh, uh, Metro Pictures, Gold, uh, um, Louis B. Mayer studio, et cetera, went into business. So she was there on the first day of MGM. Her fir- best friend became Billy Haynes, who I'm sure you're acquainted with. Um, that's another story in and of itself. So from, from that book, I, I gathered up all this material and I realized seeing the film last night, it just told her life story. And I was surprised, too, how earnest it was because I was so young and I was really... Um, As I said to you, Michael, it was an exercise in loading the camera. I had never picked up a 16-millimeter camera before. So um, I really had to learn how to put the film in. I I had not remembered a lot about that film last night, but um, it was quite detailed. It was quite structured. I was surprised it had um, a structure and a a (laughs) story to tell. It had some rhythm, you know, and it had more sound than I remember. I don't remember all the underlying sound and the, the interview. I'll tell you about that. I'd forgotten the the guy's name, but last night he was in the credits, Fred Applegate. This was the gentleman in in the second act of three who narrated his experience with Joan Crawford. He was the um, script supervisor on Mildred Pierce. So someone pointed me towards him. I interviewed him. I looked him up last night on IMDb once I knew his uh, name. And he had about 50 credits as a script supervisor going back to 1928. Wow. Fred Applegate. Uh, Mildred Pierce was uncredited, but many of his other films were uncredited as well as script supervisors. So I suppose I could log into IMDb and add Fred Applegate. He died a few years ago at the age of 92. Um, so I saw this film and I had not seen it in 35 years. And it was really a lost film. It was literally lost like in the garbage. I could tell you that story if you yeah, want. Yeah,
0: you were telling me. And it, so this we're we're kind of hopping around your your timeline, but I think it's it's a really interesting way to go about it. Because one... Uh, non-traditional is sort of the way you like to carve a path anyway and two I think that uh, this by talking about this reverence to film and how you went to films and and discovered sort of yourself in film and in this project specifically being screened last night here in LA it it, it had been preserved in the UCLA film archives by the Outfest project uh, the legacy project Project. and um, the fact that you got To see this film after almost 36 years, uh, and and that's what brings you into our studio today, is a very significant moment as well, because that's why you're in Los Angeles. uh, Because I think it's so interesting how, as you said, you learned a lot from that project. But you also said it was lost for a while, and you said it was literally lost for a while. Yes.
1: Would you care to expound on that? or We are skipping around the chronology. Or do you, want, do you want to go a little more? No, we can skip forward and rewind back to okay. the 70s. Right. I mean, between the student exercise that I shot in uh, my bedroom at my parents' house, I was at a, a community college, College of Marin. I was taking a, a, a film class. And then later that fall, I went to San Francisco State and applied for the film program there. So I grew up in, in uh, Marin, just north of San Francisco. Um, so jumping ahead twenty plus years, I had all the success Michael um, characterized in his introduction. You know, <laughs> with uh, Vegas and Space and the of Go and the eighties, uh, and I it all sort of culminated in the early nineties. Vegas and Space came out. We did uh, Dolls, which was a epic multimedia stage production of valley of the dolls which i made eight short films for that was the spring of 93 then troma got involved with vegas in space there was a premiere etc here in hollywood and elsewhere the film went to sundance so 92 93 was i was a big deal um i'm getting somewhat far afield but anyway <laughs> um, i could tell. i tried to move to hollywood and start jumpstart another film which i was involved <laughs> with um which is a story in and of itself that Got quashed. Uh, there was a contract and uh, one of the uh, people who had bankrolled the completion of Vegas in space was a stand up comedian. She had a, a scripts she wrote based on her stand up character. And she said she had a million and a half to spend. So I I came down here with my great friend at the time, Robin Clark, the cinematographer. We were getting ready to um, to move here and make this film. I quit my job. I was working at a nonprofit. I had a contract. I wrote a contract and had this lady uh, sign it. Mm hmm. For installment payments, and one thing led to another, and in her front yard when we came down here, I was confronted for the first time on my drug problem, which I well you matched it 's to quote Joan Crawford, "You matched me drink for drink for years," which she <laughs> said in uh, uh, one of her interviews with uh, Carl Jonas. so yeah, I, I had grown very attached to uh, stimulants of all kinds throughout my uh, the '80s, and um, um, I was um, pretty much on methamphetamine all the time at that point and um, It's all spitting out of control. So anyway, uh, we were sent back to San Francisco. I lived with Miss X at the time, and uh, it was very much like the scene from Clockwork Orange when Alex uh, returns to his parents' house, and uh, we've rented your room, Alex. We're awfully sorry. So I wasn't allowed to move back in because Miss X's wife, whom I'm very fond of now, Allison, uh, had... (laughs) Made arrangements for someone else to live in my room, so I gave up my rent-controlled flat of ten years because I, I don't want to live with them anymore. I didn't want to live with anyone. I moved into a little cottage um, south of Market, next door to Timmy Spence, and it was. Uh, uh, I got to. I had a little bit of money from the uh, the settlement uh, closing out the movie deal, and there's a cliche in the uh, in the twelve step programs that says I got to use the way I want to. So I just went off completely. Uh, with um, drugs and the lower companions that one uh, comes across uh, in that experience. So Mm -hmm. at the end of that, nine months living there, I was evicted and I was essentially homeless for the summer of 1994. Uh, By that, I mean, I was living in residential hotels. I got thrown out of the Broadway hotel at Broadway and Polk for being a liar. That's a story (laughs) in and of itself. Um, And um, I would say homeless so that there were days where I, Did not know where I was going to sleep that night. And I would go to the library until someone came home. Um, I settled into a really rather nice uh, single room occupancy hotel in the Tenderloin uh, and stayed there for about two years. Um, But I'd put all my things in storage. Here's the point of this long story. And by then I was completely checked out. I I didn't have a phone. I didn't have a, uh, a bank account. I didn't have a refrigerator. I didn't have a car. I didn't have anything. And I liked that. I thought this is the way I wanted. I have nothing except shooting speed and hanging out with my prostitute boyfriend. So um, it, it was, but San Francisco is like Mayberry. Everyone's you see everybody. Phil, what are you doing? What do you do now? Right. I actually said, you know, shoot speed, suck cock. <laughs> I really didn't want to see anybody. And. I knew I wasn't paying the bill on my storage unit, but I was checked out mentally. That level of my brain that dealt with things like refi- refrigerators and telephones and storage units right. was gone, and I liked it. Right. So I have a friend who sent me a postcard at the residential hotel on O'Farrell Street saying someone bought your films at a garage sale on Dolores Street. Uh, I'm trying to remember his name. Dennis Conroy was his name. He was part of the Red Victoria Theater Collective in San Francisco. So apparently, you know, after I didn't pay the bill, the storage facility sold my the contents, including all my childhood stuff. Right. It's interesting. It's like I use, That's another piece of mourning that takes many, many years to get over. But it was actually a blessing like all of this was. So that's when I knew I had a problem, actually. Right you now, that was the summer of 96. So I learned that Dennis Conroy had bought them. He knew what they were. And that was some Super 8 films. It was the print of Roller Coaster to Hell. It was the only print of Joan Crawford, Portrait of a Movie Star. The Vegas and Space Masters were with Troma, and the negatives were with the Film Lab. Um, So jumping to the end of this long story, um, all the other calamities that befall befall drug addicts occurred that year, and um, oh, I'll tell you the rock bottom moment was December 16th, 1996. Um, I was uh, driving a cab and I ran into a, uh, I had a collision uh, with a uh, 1961 Silver Cloud Rolls-Royce. Wow. And that's somebody could have been killed. It wasn't. I did not have a driver's license. Uh, I had three movie violations that year and I lost the actual physical license <laughs> in a stupor. A policeman came and he said, you know, that's your fault, you know. And I um, mean, took my sunglasses off and he said, are you taking anything? I said, no, no, I just in a terrible accident because the airbags went off. Right. He shrugged and walked away. I didn't get fired. I didn't go to jail. I said to myself, this is the day I'm going to jail. Well, you know. I also say that's the day the hand of God, I mean, literally came down and picked me up and said, please come with me now. You're done. Right. Can't you be done now? And um, eventually I went through treatment. I spent six months in residential treatment. I graduated from a halfway house um, and we had a big party when everyone graduates. I had about 20 people, you know, as I had a great party last night. And Connie Champagne, an an entertainer friend of mine, brought a box, uh, a great big box, and I opened it. It was wrapped and it was all my films and prints that she had gotten from Dennis Conroy, who'd bought them. So among those was the only print that ever existed, a 16-millimeter print of Joan Crawford's portrait of a movie star.
0: And that's why I wanted to leap a little ahead in the timeline, because we talked at the beginning that that's what brought you down here, and the celebratory moment where three decades plus, you finally get to see this film. But the film itself went on a journey, just like you have been on a journey in the last, you know, three decades plus. And so... Sometimes I think it's important to kind of discuss that and go to the end of the story before you go to the beginning. For cinematic
1: reasons. The point of that yeah. story and I could, I could is that I believe in miracles. Mm-hmm. My life is a miracle. Every day I wake up, I hold I I heard an old timer say, "I don't wake up in the morning, I resurrect." So I um I'm grateful for everything that's ever happened to me when I just shared with you uh, something that was very painful and ugly. And look where it brought me today. That to me is my philosophy of life. Within every experience lies a kernel of a greater experience. I think that's very wise.
0: Uh, All right. So a little bit back to the beginning. You started making movies around 15. As you said, you were shooting things in your parents' bedroom. Or not your parents, but your bedroom at your parents' house. Uh, and uh, at what point did you... I mean, you went to film school in San Francisco, you yes. said. W- what point did you decide to take this this skill and, and and move into the city and, like, make a go at that as in, in the world of entertainment?
1: Well, I said when I was 12, I decided I wanted to be a movie director. Sure. So... Um I'll say, I, I, I made films in high school and I became sort of notorious for them. I, I, in 1976, Christmas, my parents got me a Super 8 camera and a projector and I started shooting my friends in school. I was in the drama department. I did a lot of theater, of course, you know. And <laughs> <laughs> uh, I became kind of known for making these films. And I realized, thinking back now, I would just shoot stuff, and then I would build a structure around it. Right. So I just shot people's faces, like the school janitor or teachers or students, and I called it Emotion. Right. And I made little titles, and I said Anger. And, I, and then so, you know, I did spoofs of—I did a f- spoof of surrealism called Two Girls it was a spoof of Robert Altman's three women. Uh, <laughs> but I just shot stuff and then added that concept right. to it. I did one called Lena Wertmuller Meets Her Sister. I had a friend who was uh, playing Lena Wertmuller, the director, and getting off the Sausalito ferry coming to America. <laughs> anyway, uh, what was the question? Well, just, you know, when,
0: when you really started focusing in on entertainment as, as your identity, of course, at 12, you knew you wanted to be a filmmaker. What I really think is interesting about a lot of your work is it shows through a thread of reverence for cinema itself, because you look at, you know, we, obviously Joan Crawford is about Joan Crawford and this, this reverence of this woman, but even Roller Coaster to Hell is sort of a great nod to those educational films.
1: And also uh, the film noir. Yeah. Yeah. You know, you know. Well, um, I, 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 I left Marin um, after one year in junior college, went to San Francisco State. They had a, a film program. I didn't even know they had a film program. So I got to get out of here. There was family stuff. Uh, I just turned my back on and left and sort of became independent. Although my parents helped me. They were they always supported my filmmaking. Mm-hmm. I went. I got into the film program at San Francisco State. It was very, very competitive. They only picked 20 people a year to be in the production module at that time. And you stayed with the same 20 people for two years, junior and senior year. So um, I made Roller Coaster to Hell in that program. Um but the idea would just come to me one day. I always thought I have to have an idea. I have to have an idea. And the ideas that I labored over six months were, were junk. I made a film called Cheerleaders for Jesus. It was the time of the uh, Tammy Faye Baker story. And I was working so hard on that. It was between Roller Coaster Hill and Vegas in space. And Vegas in space stopped, happened, and space happened. I put it aside. And uh, ultimately, when I moved out of my flat uh, many years later, I threw in the garbage. So that film went in the garbage and it deserved it. I don't want to do it. The, any- the cheerleaders for Jesus. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> so it is lost to time. It was intentionally in the garbage. And that's <laughs> where it belonged. It was a waste of time.
0: Okay, so you make Roller coasters of Hell while you're at San Francisco State. Yeah. All right. So I feel like this is probably a good time to introduce to audiences who maybe don't know uh, a little bit about this side of your history. Is this r- running parallel with with the Sluts go and and sort of your involvement with that scene? Because I know Doris Fish is in Roller Coaster to Hell. So yes. this is sort of probably the, the, the path
1: to, to space, as it were. Yes, it is. Doris Fish had been watching me and she saw Joan Crawford, Portrait of a Movie Star. Uh, let me think that at, at, I got to know Doris through Laurie Nashland, who's in Vegas and space Is Debbie Dane. You know this, but but Laurie was Doris's wife, Um, married at City Hall. Uh, Doris was from Australia. And at the time, people were... My drag queen friends were marrying Australians so that they could stay here in, in, um, in, uh, uh, in the country. Miss X married Carmel Streline, who was murdered very famously in 1997 in the Pink Tarantula Murders, which you could look up. It's quite well documented. It was on America's Most Wanted. So Lori's, Lori was in a film class at San Francisco State, of Super A class. I met her. Um, and through her, I met Doris and, um, I went to Doris's shows and and I was overwhelmed at how much fun they were. They were Doris, Ms. X and Tippy. They did, um, little nightclub shows as Sluts a Go-Go and I was making films and Doris was paying attention. So, um, I'd made Joan Crawford and I made a half hour super eight sync sound epic sync sound in super eight in 1981 was not easy it was single system so it was a little magnetic stripe on on this little tiny piece of film so you had to plan every cut basically in order to do sound before you even shot it called um trouble in paradise um forgive me and sloops um (laughs) (laughs) i didn't know of Lubitsch at the time but um uh, it was a, it was a, that was sort of my autobiographical film about rich kids in Marin behaving badly doing drugs uh, getting naked jumping in the hot tub and there was a sort of horror subtext of a sort of half-wit little sister who hated them because she wasn't included And she turned up the hot tub and boiled them <laughs> it was the time of I want it all now a, a documentary on, on network television about Marin County and the excesses of where I grew up so I grew up in an area that was famous for peacock feathers and personal uh, you know you know, uh, self-actualization movements and such. Cults. Right. So it was a spoof of that. Anyway, I did some very rough um, sound mixing on that. And I remember I used a record of bird calls in the background for that bucolic sort of, you know, suburban lifestyle. Anyway, I show we used to show our films on, on the wall of people's houses. And Doris came with uh, Lori Nashland and her girlfriend Sarah. And I remember those... Um, bird calls were in this film were so over over amped it was like gigantic dinosaur birds were um were chirping and doris loved that she laughed and laughed and laughed then i made a film called recipe for terror in doris's kitchen starring sarah chicchini Lori's um uh partner uh, five minutes five minutes it was basically a woman's um appliances come to life and attack her so it was the kitchen appliances doing trilogy of terror and doris was there watching um what's the shattering climax of that film she calls the police and it was recorded like like the Italians do with the audio afterwards, so it's very out of sync. It says, "Help, help! My appliances are attacking me!" And the <laughs> phone, the phone says, "Forget it, bitch! I'm not helping you." <laughs> anyway, so Doris was paying attention, um, and I made a roller coaster to hell, and I needed some beatniks to show up in the tea pantry, the underground uh, beatnik uh, uh, garage where they all smoked marijuana and instantly became strung out on heroin. And Doris showed up, and um, most of the other people didn't. I was happy to have extras. And she said, Look, I'm an older, artistic woman. That was her character, a long, beatnik wig. And she had like garbage bags or uh, paper grocery bags crumpled up inside her stockings. So she had crinkly legs and a big, fat, flabby butt. And she um, was in the film, and. the scene had no end, so Doris was, as the older artistic woman, just collapsed on the floor to get attention. So she was always throwing herself on the floor to get attention. <laughs> so from that roller coaster to hell was what you would call a hit. That's the one that went to Creature Features, right, on Channel Two. And there was a filmmaker, Mark Eustace. He uh, made a film called Whatever Happened to Susan Jane? And I met Mark, and uh, he programmed Roller Coaster to Hell as a short with that film uh, in 1982, 83. So it got a lot of attention in San Francisco. So from those experiences, Doris reached out to me via Sarah Cicchini, Laurie Naslin's barmaid um, partner, to do a film. Right. Now this film, as Legend has it, was
0: inspired by a party.:
1: Yeah. The credits do say based on a party by Ginger Quest. You'd have to ask Miss X about it. She has a catalog of memories about that party. I guess I was there, but I can't say I remember it. <laughs> <laughs> but so. Th- this- Michael, that was just a joke. Doris liked the idea of the credit based on a party by Ginger Quest. Is that there true? were many parties, but it was at the very beginning. That was what it was, the credit was going to be.
0: Based on a party. But, but so there was there was no party.
1: Otherwise, oh, there were tons of them. There were tons of them. Right. And the, the, the house was decorated to some degree like that. I remember before the film, they had the upside down Christmas tree from the ceiling, like the Poseidon Adventure. That was very <laughs> <laughs> popular. And Ginger Quest was Doris's housemate. So at that time, Ginger and Doris were housemates together. And oh, yeah, there was a Vegas in Space party, and people would come and lip sync. And there were tons of parties at that time at that flat. And I went to them all. Or, right. But I just don't.
0: Well, and it kind of feels like that this is sort of a culmination and meeting of paths because, as you said, Doris and Tippy and Miss X are performing, you're making films, you are all sort of curating this, this post coquette scene in San Francisco that is all uniquely your own. It's this punk rock, drag kind of performance explosion. Uh, you're doing your shows uh, together. Um and then this movie, this mm-hmm. movie that kind of feels like a perfect brainchild of, of your love of cinema and just sort of the the outrageousness that Doris brings. So, you know, I, I think that uh, for people who don't necessarily uh, know, know Doris as well as, as others, Doris, as you mentioned, uh, came from Australia, was a drag queen who was a fixture in San Francisco at the time. Famously uh, kind of helped change the San Francisco drag landscape as far as I'm concerned Uh, and then, and then you set off, I think, to make probably one of the most ambitious projects you could at the time, a drag space opera adventure inspired by Flash Gordon and your love of famous monsters and things. Tell me a little bit about how you just all of a sudden are like, we're
1: going to go, we're going to make a drag space movie. That's. Doris asked me to make it. That specifically? Yeah. She said, well, first, she wanted to do a remake of Valley of the Doll. I really didn't know what that was, but I learned later. Oh, I learned. <laughs> I mentioned Sarah Chikini, uh, Doris's wife's lover. She was a barmaid at the Hotel Utah, which is still there. Right. I, I did a film screening of some films at the Hotel Utah. I know I showed Joan Crawford portrait of a movie star there. It's probably the last time it was ever shown publicly, along with Roller Coaster to Hell. And I would go there after college at San Francisco State downtown to drink. Mm. Um, I got free drinks and I was, I I was big on uh, vodka gimlets. And Sarah said to me, Doris wants to make a movie with you. She wants to do a movie at Valley of the Dolls. And I said, okay, I'd love to. So I met with Doris and who I, you know, we were friends and Miss X, who I did not know very well at all over breakfast one day. And this was late 1982 and they had written a script. They had the whole thing thought out. Now, it wasn't a full script. It was about 25 pages handwritten uh, for Vegas in space. And they had cast all the principal characters. Doris was going to be Tracy Daniels. Miss X was Queen Veneer. Tippy was Princess Angel. Ginger was the Empress. There was a a pink sky. The, The metaphysical concepts of this being a planet only of queens. Right. Um, the uh, common people had to be black and white because they hadn't earned color yet. So uh, I would say what ended up in the the, the, the finished film maybe... 30% 30% of that was in the script, but it's chrono- chronologically like the first half of the film was in the script. And um, I said, OK, we need a schedule and a budget. I'd love to. I saw this as my big break. I was 21 years old. I was being asked to direct a movie. We didn't see it as a feature because w- I was in film school. That old lame line from William Goldman, you know, a uh, 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 page a minute. So, I said, OK, we're making a 25 minute movie. OK, so we didn't think anything about that then. So I went home and typed it up and um, we started shooting it in the spring of 83 with not much of a... uh a plan beyond what I've just described. You know, Doris had $5,000, and the f- major inspiration for this film was, uh, not to get, digress, but in addition to being a drag queen, Doris was a very, very talented artist. She was a painter, uh, she um, was a designer, a decorator, because in, in Vegas and Space, it's a very singular film in that the star of the film was also the producer, and that she paid for it. She d- built all the sets, designed the costumes, designed the wigs, and mostly single-handedly applied or designed the makeup. So the point is that Doris had just come back from New York, and she she was from Australia. I I liked it. Uh, And she said, I've just bought $1,000 worth of fun fur. We have to make a film with fun fur. So uh, the fur that she had bought was really the impetus of going from Valley of the Dolls to a Barbarella-type movie, Vegas and space. So it was the fur that caused the, the film to be made. I love that. A, a, a simple transition,
0: but a significant one.
1: Uh, red, yellow, blue, magenta, pink, uh, purple,
0: uh, fun fur. And the, the outer space sets for Vegas and Space were all
1: constructed inside of Doris's apartment. Mostly, yeah. Yeah. There were a few scenes that were shot, um, you know, in rented space, the gothic detention center, the shopping mall, theater spaces or warehouse spaces.
0: Now, I'm going to allow you a moment to kind of speak to a myth about the film, uh, one that has perpetrated both uh, by by Troma's DVD as well as, like, o- other publications. But you started shooting in 1983. March, 1983.
1: And... Uh, My senior year at San Francisco State.
0: The legacy of the film is that it took eight years to make. And that's both accurate and not exactly accurate at the exact same time, correct?
1: Correct. It took... Um, a little over a year to shoot. Right. So the last day we shot anything was uh, August 1984, mm-hmm. uh, and that was the black and white sequence in the middle that we shot, which is the second time we shot that. We shot not to digress. We shot that whole scene in the middle in the summer of '83, in Miss X's flat—a much smaller version of the scene—sent it to the lab. It came back completely black. Complete nothing was there except a so it was very frustrating. There were many things like that that happened. Um, right could have been a lab error but I, it wasn't and later robin and i think the cameraman flashed all the film i hope you're not listening al um <laughs> it's the only thing that could have happened so we did it entirely again in 1984 and we did it twice as big rewrote the script put more characters into it and by then i think it was really a pleasure we did I took about five days and we knew what we were doing it's one of my, my favorite scene in the film the middle section the black and white section. Right. If you look at some of the other scenes that were shot earlier, it just was so amateur compared to this. Anyway, we were done. Right. But we um didn't have any money or a plan to finish it. You know, right. I did a little editing um, and I stopped and um, we hadn't even, you know, um, finished shooting it yet at that point. So then there were six years of trying to raise money, essentially, before it premiered. Right. And that's a story in and of itself.
0: And could you maybe speak a little bit to that journey? Because one of the things about Dead for Filth that we do for listeners is sort of preserve... Both the history of of the cinema of the people who are on the show, but also in more in general uh, queer history, because I think it, with a lot of times uh, our guests, those things are very much interconnected, and over the course of the next few years after you 've finished principal photography there 's sort of a journey to that premiere in 1991 and not sort of a journey there's definitively a journey sure that uh if if you feel okay speaking to i I would love to to hear there's a
1: show business journey and then there's a personal journey for the people who are no longer with us and they're one one journey one story so the the film was in the can we started doing little benefit shows we did the miss solar system pageant um uh at the trocadero great big nightclub i think ginger sold out from the um um the Jetsons, they had a solar system <laughs> uh, So, yeah, I don't know. Maybe we made six or $800, you know. But it was the first time I was on stage with Doris. Doris said, You're going to be the MC. Because I had done theater in high school. And, you know, they, I was the lead in some stuff. The man who came to dinner, if you want to imagine me at 60 in a wheelchair with a glued on mustache, braying at people for three hours. <laughs> so, um, So the point is that I got on stage with them and it was really, I was put on stage by Doris. Right. She put everybody, she wanted to put the world in drag. I'd like to put the world in drag because she, I don't want to say she had an Andy Warhol aesthetic, but she saw things in people that she thought needed to be brought out. And she thought everybody, she needed a supporting cast. So she built a supporting cast. I wasn't there when Tippi and Miss X came along, but I'm pretty sure she had a significant influence on their personas and willingness and eagerness to be on stage. Right. Zora's put me on stage. We became sort of a team throughout the, uh, that period. Um, this is the showbiz part of it. And uh, we did the we did the Gay Cable Network, which I don't know if you know about that.
0: I think you, we've talked about it personally, like, a little bit, but I don't really Apparently know Apparently, it.
1: in the, in the whole thing is in the um, uh, in the, the Legacy Project archive. I learned that last night. Um, um, one of the, the programmers said they got the John Canale collection. So we were on TV every week for a year. Uh, Doris and Tippy were the hostesses. There was a half hour of straight news. This was from 1984 to 1985. And it wasn't public access. It was uh, on a paid public channel. So there were commercials. And then we did a half hour of entertainment news. And Doris and Tippy were a team. And they were very controversial. They were they, In this period, the drag queen was more, much more transgressive than it is now in the post-RuPaul drag race period. At that time... Uh, There was a period in the early 80s where the San Francisco gay pride said, no, drag queens. We don't want drag queens. This is not the image we want to present. It was time uh, of gays in the military. We want to be normal like everybody else. And Doris actually said, you know, if I have to change who I am to be accepted by society, I'm just not interested. So Doris and Tippy were doing entertainment news. I did that San Francisco, a lively, informative update of what's in, what's out, what's hot, what's not. And all this and more coming up next. Um, someone wrote into the Bay Area Reporter, our local gay newspaper, having Doris and Tippy do the gay news is the, like having Aunt Jemima do the black news. Wow. So there was – and <clears throat> I was very um, cynically um, – Harping on the gay community, I look back now and what I was doing with my uh, updates of things. I would plug our shows, our friend shows. I sat down. We did two shows every other Saturday. I sat down with all the um, entertainment sections, newspapers, and looked up what to promote. Dynasty was big then. Everybody had to go to Dynasty, you know. It was the the gay. I always rebelled against the group, and Mm -hmm. I always rebelled against the gay identity. Um, So my image was there. I tried to compete with Doris. I wore – and I did – A year of shows, maybe 40 or 50 shows, I never wore the same thing twice. And I looked fantastic. I I had very big hair and a full theatrical makeup. And I went and did remote things as well. But in that San Francisco, first it was like this week's dynasty party is at the, uh, you know, the Castro Corner or the local bar. Well, then I started looking up in the phone book other bars like this week's. Dynasty party is at Fat Ron Saloon on Geneva Avenue out by the Cow Palace, and you would just pick a bar, <laughs> yeah, and I would just <laughs> make stuff up <laughs> about you know uh, I do things about you know the the gay chorus is doing this and the Memorial March for Age and Sesame Street on Ice is opening next week. I know I'll be there. You should too. <laughs> so that got very controversial because it was the first time in San Francisco there was a gay um, uh, uh, television show. And it was really quite irreverent. And Doris and Tippy were very funny. Tippy was the weather girl at first, and they became, um, they became hosts of the show. And the show ended. Then we went on to the happy hour, the 181 Club. That was a live talk show. And Doris and I were the hosts. And Nightclub of the Living Dead was the fourth and final installment of that. Right. And those became quite well-known in an underground kind of way. Still very, very underground. <clears throat> and from there, Doris got kind of famous. She was the um, a, a, a model for West Graphics greeting cards. You may have seen these. I actually own a box of these cards that Doris modeled for. Yeah. Right. So West Graphics was Randy West, and um, he was an artist of some renown. He'd done some airbrush sort of well-known gay imagery. They had a very uh, successful line of greeting cards and, and – um Uh, He and his partner would use Doris as their primary artist and model. She would go in and do 10 looks a day, maybe $100 a look, you know. Right. And she'd bring in other people. I did a few. I did an Elvis Presley one, um, Miss Exit an Andy Warhol one. We all did them. And then around 1986, Craig Seligman, who's a friend of mine now and who's written a biography of Doris Fish, lives in San Francisco. He was a, a, a critic for the San Francisco Examiner, and he wrote a Sunday color supplement on Doris called Aggressive Glamour, and that sort of got Doris famous for her six weeks of fame. Right. Uh, That was reprinted in The Advocate, so she became a national figure for a short period of time. She went on a tour with the West Graphics Reading Card. She ended up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. There's a There's
0: a very amazing talk show appearance with Doris in Pittsburgh, which I've seen. And you can see it on YouTube. I believe you were the one who posted it on YouTube. No, someone preceded
1: me on that one. Because you're very
0: good at preserving things. It it, it was my VHS copy I gave to somebody. It originates
1: with you always, I think that thing captures the essence of what Doris was at that time, because there was a really significant political to bent to what she was doing. that came across there. And this was in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And it was like the whole Phil Donahue period. But next we're going to talk to someone who calls herself a drag queen. Her lifestyle may be somewhat different than yours, but let's talk to Doris next. Right. And she really messed with the male, um, the male um, pr- uh, uh, presenter. She said, you know, like, well, I don't know. Uh, you know, I would never presume upon anyone's gender. You are straight, right? And, then, and he says, do you, like, what do you say when children see you in this? Is I like to be a role model to think that, you know, anyone can be a drag queen and then children can be a drag queen. Well, <laughs> these farmers look like they, in the studio audience, look like they wanted to get their pitchforks out, right? you know. So it was pretty political, and that captured Essence's aggressive glamour her, her 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 look which was n- not at all trying to look like a woman that right. was very much less go. we're trying to look like drag queens we're not trying to look like women
0: I love the phrase aggressive glamour I think there's there's such power and a uh, political statement there is it interesting well not interesting is is it hard for you or do you do you, um, just looking at you reference the current landscape of drag what, what's your feeling on it now, having seen, like, the transgressive step uh, that it, 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 you know, the beginnings, the sort of punk rock ethos, and, and to see just that change? To use a
1: tired cliche, been there, done that, <laughs> it, it doesn't interest me at all. Um, right. I, 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 I moved across the Bay um, to Oakland in two thousand thirteen 13 years ago, 2005. So when you leave town in San Francisco, it's like you've gone to outer space. So I'm no longer a figure at all. There are a couple of people who are big wigs in San Francisco, Highlina, Darcy Drollinger. I knew when they first blew in blew in from the prairie. You know, um, they were stagehands on my shows. I like them, but I, I think rather in the last few decades, it's witless. It has no wit. Um, the lame drag names. I joke with my husband David. He does hair and wigs and um He has even more. I won't tell you what he says about them. I won't. because (laughs) He's on Facebook and um, he will be savage. Um, So I'm just not interested. I don't see a whole lot of uh, clever things going on. I told you about the shows we did. We wrote original scripts. You know, their idea of high art is um, Three's Company or, or the Golden Girls, you know, and typing scripts off the TV. That's as high as it gets. Maybe a Rocky Horror revival or a Hedwig revival. Right. Okay, that's fine. But I would say there are three or four or five generations now. I use the, the joke, they've blown in off the prairie and think they invented it. You know, I also went through, um, you know, treatment in about 10 years in AA. There's a real dynamic in San Francisco, uh, gay AA in the Castro. Yeah, yeah, come here from Kansas. Yeah get strung out on booze and speed. You go to treatment you get sober and you become a drag queen. Right. So there's a whole infrastructure uh, in the gay AA for you to become a drag queen. There are amateur shows and there are c- country clubs and there are drag moms and such. And I just, my, I've moved on. I have a different life entirely. Right. It is not of interest to me. You know, I'm friendly with one or two people, but I don't go to anything and I don't, I, I don't do the social networks, the Facebook, um, because I'm self-involved and don't care about anybody else. I'm a (laughs) solopsist. (laughs) for this very reason, because people would want to engage me uh, about 1983, 1984. I know a goodly number of people who were there, who were on the margins, who are still acting the same way 30 years later. And it's not me. So I don't really dwell on it or or, or think about it. Right. You've just moved on.
0: Yeah. Uh,
1: So just
0: back into the timeline, Doris has has that, that run of fame, uh, comes back from Pittsburgh, and then things probably take
1: a little bit of a different turn. Yes. Um, underlying all that was the movie was never finished, and I right. kept thinking we have to scheme to get some money into how to do that. So occasionally we did this or that. Um, and we did The Bad Seed. And um, it wasn't an adaptation. It was a licensed production. So oh. I approached it very seriously. We paid a royalty to William French. I took it as a very serious um, approach to the play. Because I had direct... Like, Roller Coaster to Hell, I directed quite straight. But if it shows an audience, it gets tons of laughs. Right. So you don't plan the laughs. Um, likewise, with, with Valley of the Dolls. So... I, I, I had directed in high school, and it's the first time I directed anything. Uh, although we did these nightclub shows, there was no director, although I sort of dealt with the, the tech, where the lights go and such. Um, and during that period, it started while well, we are doing Bad Seed, which was a big hit. It got a rave review in the San Francisco Chronicle from Mick LaSalle, who's still their filmmaker. He became a big booster of Doris, sold out the whole week run and, you know— one day. Right. We did a 10-week extension. It was a 50-seat theater, not hard to sell out. <laughs> During that period, Doris played Monica Breedlow, the older n- neighbor. And she was channeling her mother, Mildred, padded body, used the Australian accent, gigantic 1940s style, purple wig, but totally straight. She was doing Mildred, her mother. Right. And she had these age spots painted on her. And it, someone pointed out that those are our Ks lesions and age spots painted together. So it was during that period from 87 to 88 that it became known that Doris had AIDS. And um, Doris had uh, earned her living as a male escort. Um, she placed her ad in the San Francisco Chronicle rather than the gay newspapers because she said, you know, straight men come to me and I'm the only man they have sex with all year. So she catered to a DL now is the term, right. uh conventioner crowd. And that's how she paid for The first chunk of Vegas in space with her prostitution money. Mm -hmm. There was more than one occasion where we'd be sitting at the uh, kitchen table working on the film. The phone would ring and Doris had many personalities. Doris Fish was the feminine, aggressive, glamour character. The real Philip, his name was Philip like mine. Philip Mills was somewhere in the middle, a very small, indiscriminate indiscreet indiscret person right and then there was phil the hustler and he was very butch very masculine as much as there was the extreme uh joke of femininity on the feminine side of the spectrum phil the hustler was extremely butch right So was like hello seven inches (laughs) fifty dollars the doorbell would ring she would Go off and have her a trick while we're at the kitchen. She'd come back and she took checks. She would come back and give me a check for $50 for the film fund. This is true. Yeah. So this is how we lived. It was, it certainly demystified the role of the prostitution for me. <clears throat> I learned a lot <laughs> about prostitution and drag in the eighties. Um, served me well later in life, but um, not to digress. So Doris got AIDS and died. Right. And Tippy got AIDS and died six weeks later. And um, neither one of them actually got to see Vegas in space. Um, uh, skipping over all the fundraising and the benefits and the begging and the borrowing and the uh, limited partnerships that went nowhere. <clears throat> uh, I was totally depressed about the film, but we've been doing a lot of theater and notoriety. My friends were dying. It was the height of the AIDS epidemic. I was like, half the people I you know, knew died. I didn't know if I was going to die. Uh, and in uh, January 1991, this um, uh, backer I mentioned earlier, the, the stand-up comedian who was uh, a bit of an heiress, she—I um, called her. Someone told me she has money. I called her on New Year's Day and said, um, "Person X, would you please um, give me twenty-five thousand dollars to finish Vegas in Space?" And she said, "Sure." Wow. So I met her at a cocktail lounge. I didn't have a car. I was—I had a job at a nonprofit, but we—we uh, uh, we had a martini, and she gave me a check for twenty-five thousand dollars and i walked home so anyway she gave me some more after that but uh we finished the film in six months really that was january by may uh we we'd shot the miniatures in advance we shot the titles we did all the post-production stuff we did the right. sound and um we started doing the um, um marketing campaign it was booked at the castro theater for october so it was like booked to open like four months before it was finished we, we had a schedule we had right. the money I still stiffed a lot of people like, you know, sound studios and stuff. But, um, you know, we had a publicist, a very hot publicist in San Francisco. And um, um, I I locked the picture on May 31st, my uh, 30th birthday, and um, had a big party at a nightclub called The End Up. And then I went on a road trip um, with my best friend, Ira, who's no longer with us. We went through the South, uh, Memphis and Georgia, New Orleans. And I spent three weeks doing the You See America First while the soundtrack was being developed and um doris was dying and i got home and about mm, less than a week later doris died um uh i was living with miss x at the time and it was dawn and she came in it was a very mildred pierce um episode because she was silhouetted silhouetted by the dawn behind the drapes Mm -hmm. and it's like well doris is dead so we went over there um and um you know we spent some time with her i was not there when she passed but people were and um it was a huge, huge, huge story. Her death made the front page of the San Francisco Examiner. Right. Uh, and it was about a week before Gay Pride. So I didn't often participate, but we did have, I wouldn't say a float, but a gigantic convertible Cadillac with a gigantic canvas self-portrait that Doris had done with scads of people. You know, they had a big thing on the stage for her that Miss X and I were involved in. And so there were many tributes during that time. However, the film was being mixed and uh you know going through the post production stages of prints and you know negatives and such. And uh 6 weeks later in August, Tippi passed away. Uh her case of AIDS was not so publicized or celebrated as Doris's was, but um she was ready to go. Her a long-time partner was Bob Davis, who uh was our sound designer. I'm still friends with him. He's now Ms. Bob, he's transitioned, but um he was um, taking care of my dog right now. Oh, uh, so. Um, uh, yeah. So it, it, it was a very, very, very intense period of time. Right. Finishing the film very quickly. Um, all my dreams coming true. And last time I saw Doris was May. Uh, we had been invited to the London uh, Gay and Lesbian Film Festival the following year in February. And I told her that. And she had she- San Francisco used to have a gay community awards called the Cable Car Awards. And um, um, Doris was nominated that year as Entertainer of the Year. Right. And she was in Australia. She went back one more time that winter summer there. And Miss X and I picked up the award and it was presented by Robert Morris, who was in town doing uh, Truman Capote. So um, I went to give her the award and tell her we've been invited to um, to London and the film's booked for October. And she died about four weeks later. And Tippi died in August, and the film premiered October 11th, 1991. So it was just, I look back now, the the overarching grief with the happiness and the celebration. So as I said before, for me, life has always been double-edged. Everything, the duality uh, of good and bad, hard and soft, has always been very present in my life. And that, I think, encapsulates that I've had... I don't, David, my husband, David says, you're so lucky. and I said, David is not lucky. luck. I'm blessed. You know, it's not me. Right. But it, it, it goes two ways. You know, it's not my actions that are causing these things to happen. It's just who I am.
0: Well, in this whole journey, uh, you know, one of the reasons that I have long wanted to have you on the show, and this is a little bit more of a history lesson than some of our other episodes, but I think that. It's so important this movie that you made not only to the queer cinema movement but as Has frequently been discussed when discussing Vegas and space throughout the actual making of the film it was just all of these things happened and It's a moment in queer history that I think our community could do well to learn from because you know This is this is true true drag history gay cinema history but it's it's also your personal journey, and, and this this thing that you know had to be very bittersweet. You you open at the Castro in October. You play Sundance. Uh in a year that was sort of heralded as the year of queer wave cinema.
1: Oh, yeah. They had the B. Ruby Rich panel. And I got to stand up, but it was ever on the panel. That's an interesting point. This did come out in the year of the queer. Yeah. So that year, it was Derek Jarman's Edward II. It was Swoon by Tom And It was Greg um, um What was that movie about the boys with suicide with AIDS? I can't remember. Oh, The Living End. The yeah. Living End. It was... Um, all the film, um, um, The Hours of the Times, Christopher Monk. So, all those films were there that year. And, um, I, we were not in competition, we were at a special event. Um, I have a very dear friend who's a film producer and consultant who's served on the board of every film festival, right. um, Bob Hawke. You know, he's quite well known. Love Bob Hawk, And he uh, is the reason I went to Sundance because he's worked at Sundance for probably 20 years. And I'm sure he advocated for the film mm-hmm. in a way that it would not even be on their radar if uh, he had not advocated for it. Not to say, not to say uh, anyone pulled any strings. That's not how it works at right. Sundance. But um, I have a point. In regard to your context about the history. So it was the year of the queer. Um, David Weissman was there with a the short. He went on to do the Cockettes. I've known David since the beginning. It's um, funny. He made another film called We Were There um, about AIDS, which was a very good film. But I bumped into David once going to a party. and I said, what are you doing? He said, oh, I'm making a documentary about the epidemic. And I said, which one? Wow. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> um, Anyway, the year of the queer, there was a pantheon. It yeah. was the Christine Vachon crowd. I met Christine Vachon standing in a T-shirt in the snow, you know, and said, I'm Philip Ford. And she barked at me, I know who you are. You know, so my point is that Vegas and space never fit into that pantheon. Right. It was... Um, it was too vulgar. It was too cheap. It was too stupid. It did not aspire to a finer sensibility. It was very much of Doris's um, as political and aesthetic um, sensibility of amateur, ugly, stupid, beautiful, um, vulgar, witty, intelligent. It just it, it those films were so genteel and it never really got included in in the pantheon i laughed last year the legacy project did an anniversary i think 25th anniversary of the year of the queer and they showed all those films and i wasn't surprised and to your point uh michael vegas in space has been outside of that new queer cinema forever having troma release it is another you know thing that's you can't get more lowbrow than that um other distributors wanted it but none of them wanted to offer any money and i wasn't positioned to not do that and I always quiz them how are you going to market it what are you going to do and Marty Sokol who was at Troma at the time now runs uh, Club Cobra in Burbank uh, there's the plug um, (laughs) he had a grandiose plan we had a four night premiere in Hollywood and he's the reason I went with Troma
0: But you know what I think is interesting is it goes back to what you were saying earlier about how when you were doing your cable show and drag was sort of considered still the black sheep of of the the gay community, Um, one of the things that Lloyd always talks about, Lloyd Kaufman of Trauma, when this film came out, you were a year and a half away from Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, in terms of you all made a drag movie when no one was really looking for drag movies. And that was an
1: Australian drag movie, too, with the nice.
0: the irony of that Damn. as well um, and it's sort of just like you were at the cutting edge before you even knew it was the cutting edge you were just making art that was authentic to your group of people and um, we've talked about this many times uh, in, in person about yes Vegas in space is a singular entity amongst that queer movement but I think that's what gives it power because Cult cinema is sort of like, it's sort of like us. It is, it, is, it is, the queerness. So we find, we find our people and we find our way. And sometimes that means being outside of that ivory tower, but the further you're, the further you're outside of it and the longer you're outside of it, who wants to really be part of it? I mean, it's nice, but look at the life that Vegas in space has had since. Uh, you know, I, I think that the movie has found its its audience even through its unconventional means. And I kind of feel like unconventional is exactly the, the, where it needed to go. If, if...
1: Where else could it go? Rick. Yes. We used to joke um, when we were planning our publicity. It's an art film cleverly disguised as trash. <laughs> that was the basic thrust of what we were trying to do. Um, easy to understand, no hidden meaning entertainment. I'm sure that was in the press release package. Um but that was the spoof in and of itself. So I understand what you're saying. Um a couple of years after the film was completed, it did show up on uh USA Network, Rhonda Shear's Up All Night program. Right. And I think more people saw it there than in any theatrical or film festival engagement. And that um Miss X and I went to L.A. and did a little intros with Ron here. I was not acquainted with that show. I was out drinking and partying in 1986. I was not watching TV on Saturday night. Right. But a lot of other people did. I know they did Gilbert Gottfried on Saturday on Friday and Rhonda Shear on Saturday. I didn't know who Rhonda Shear was, but she was very nice. Didn't she go out with Larry King? <laughs> she may have. I mean, I think we all dated Larry King for a like a hot minute. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I would at my job. We Miss X and I got on an airplane. It was very glamorous. We flew to Burbank. Marty picked us up. We went to the I did my own makeup. I would not let them do my makeup. <laughs> um, uh, because it was probably about five times more than I would I wish I could have done Charles Bush's makeup and uh, Die, Mommy Die. Too much beard shadow. He needed about two times more foundation loved the movie but uh, very thin makeup for it. it was like a touch of revlon powder in some scenes but um uh, it was the judge judy set which i was thrilled that we shot on and it was broadcast um vegas in space on usa up, up all night my point michael is that i've met so many people who said they saw that broadcast and that inspired them to be themselves to come to san francisco to be a drag queen Years later, I did the show Dolls, and a young boy named Doug uh, Joffrey, I was quite, you know, he he ended up decorating the sets. And he was from Vancouver, and he um, uh, did a great job. He just showed up and volunteered and decorated the sets. And uh, um, I had gone to Vancouver to not a gay film festival with, with Vegas in Space, and we had a big premiere in Vancouver. And he told me he saw Vegas in Space, and it made him come to San Francisco and seek us out right. to work on our our our, uh, show at the time.
0: Well, I know two people who were very galvanized by that screening of Vegas and Space on USA up all night, I being one of them, another being my dear friend Peaches Christ. Uh, And she and I have definitely made it a mission of ours to to let people know how wonderful and loved this movie is to us. But one of the things that I think is so important about that up all night screening that maybe, you know, seems like not anything that you would even think about in a post RuPaul's Drag Race world. You had a movie. Primarily filled with drag queens airing on a major cable network in the early 90s, that. Oh, mid 80, 90, 96, yeah, 90s, yeah. 96, yeah. Impossible. Like I mean, like there were no queer movies playing on TV at all when that played. So that to me is so legendary in terms of cult cinema, but queer cinema. And we can talk all we want about the, the movies that played at Sundance that year, but you played on cable to a mass audience. It was in TV Guide. I cut it out. <laughs> <laughs> and i think for a generation of queer kids who were looking for anything remotely you know that they could connect to to see themselves it's exactly what you're saying they saw it and they were mobilized to come to san francisco or mobilized to create art you know that that to me is the power of this movie and it's the legacy of this movie and you know why i just always am, am yelling from the rafters there was a time where this kind of content was not available to us. But people like you made it and gave it to us. And that's so important. That's so important. So. Well,
1: thank you so much. I, I, I've been very grateful to you and Peaches um, over the last 10 years. Peaches has produced two uh, uh, anniversary events, one at the uh, 20th anniversary, or was it the 15th? She did the 15th. 15th. Yeah. So that's where I met you, Michael. You did a... Uh, great article. And then uh, two years ago, we did the 25th anniversary at the San Francisco Gay and Lesbian Film Festival. And Peaches gave it her full Peaches Christ um, treatment with a fantastic pre-show uh, um, interviews. But we reassembled the whole cast. There were 20 people who had worked on the film, yeah. cinematographers and, and lighting people, as well as the actors who were alive. People came from all over the country to be on stage. And, you know, I worked with Peaches on that for six months and I'm just so eternally grateful. I wanted to do a 25th anniversary event. These things don't just happen. I began visualizing a year in advance and I knew that Peaches would be uh, interested. I thought, well, if, you know, um, we could do it at Frameline, that would be great. If we could, if Peaches would do it, that would be great. It was both of them. Yeah, it was a
0: confluence of events. So that was
1: a big night. And this is that that event, folks, is also available on YouTube um, and it's worth seeing Um, it really touched me and made me very happy. And as I've always said, things don't just happen. Things right. happen because you make them happen. But it's the people like you and Peaches who couldn't make it happen because I couldn't make it happen at this point. I'm not in show business anymore.
0: Well, I will say about the 25th anniversary show, uh, and I revealed this to the producer of uh, Dead for Filth right before we started uh, recording, That is a singular moment uh, because it's probably the only time in my career of performance that I actually portrayed someone who was sitting in the audience. Uh, I actually played Philip... In the stage version that Peaches did of Vegas and Space. Was that my
1: idea or your idea?
0: That was your idea. All right. In an, email, <laughs> in an email chain, and you said, Michael can play me. So I went and I got my hair uh, blondified, I bleached yeah. and blonded. And, uh, my only,
1: my only direction, uh, uh, direction note was you must chain smoke. You did, it? I yeah. Right.
0: Smoke then, and I had uh, I had uh, that pack of cigarettes with me, mm-hmm. and I came out and yelled at Peaches. It was a joyous moment for me.
1: Um. <laughs> I posted on YouTube a lot of behind the scenes video of the making of Vegas in Space. I haven't had a lot of hits over the years, but it'll be there someday when it's really rediscovered. Um, We filmed everything behind the scenes. Doris had a video camera in 1980 to film herself. And so that was kind of a beta camera. So we filmed everything. And there's an interesting scene. on those making of where Doris is not in drag and she and Miss X are watching us shoot the shopping mall sequence. That was 10 days. It was grueling. I was awake for 10 days and I was in that. I played a tourist. So I have this like clown suit on blue face and I'm trying to direct this dolly to get this, um, um, uh, character, the robots that float around the, the mall. And and I was just demented. And Doris and Miss X are talking in the foreground of the camera. Is it going to be all right? I don't know. Phil says it's going to be all right, but I don't know. (laughs) And I'm just back there, you know, uh, gesticulating and, um, trying to get this scene right. And it's four in the morning. We've been there for three days trying to line this thing up. So there's some, uh, witty behind the scenes stuff available. Um, um, on YouTube as well it's all wonderful uh, I've, I've watched I've, you sent it to me on
0: DVDs before I, I when we first met I remember you sent me a little package of DVDs and you sent me a DVD burn of the behind-the-scenes uh, footage so I re- watched it on my TV and I was just like oh my god I get to see the behind the curtain of Oz oh know? yes back <laughs>
1: then I was young and thin and gorgeous I'm still pretty gorgeous you're still pretty gorgeous not so young up. and not so thin uh, the lady where I had breakfast that I looked 32 That's right.
0: You know what? Come to LA, have a good breakfast, get a nice compliment. That's what we like here. Uh, do you, um, I mean, and so after Vegas and space, you, as you have said, you, you had, when we back at the beginning, when we jumped ahead in the timeline, there was a, a bit of a, a, a transitional period. You're not really in the world of film anymore. No. But, uh, does it please you to know that, you know, the things that you've made still have
1: this life? Of course it does. I'm thrilled and delighted. Um, Joan Crawford, a portrait of a movie star was something I never thought would ever, ever, ever come out of the box, much less um, be uh, restored and, and, and show at the Billy Wilder Theater. If that was on my list of things to do, I would never believe it. And the Vegas in space never seems, ceases to surprise me when something pops up. Uh, last year, there was uh a, a, a Empire magazine. They did a full six-page color article. It's a British film magazine mm-hmm. about the history of Vegas in space. Not really available here. It is, but no one in America is going to see it. I know you read it. Um, and that touched me because that article got the story right. I read it, and I thought— this doesn't make me sound like an idiot, which is what most of the gay press did. You know, just sort right. of a shallow thing. It really got the story right. So every few years, something comes along that I find very gratifying. I don't think about it. I right. went through a year, uh, a period of legacy polishing about seven eight years ago, because I realized you're responsible for your own history. So that was when I digitized all my shorts. All these shows are available. Um, you know, the 181 Club, Nightclub of the Living Dead, Happy Hour Show, Bad Seed. They're all available on YouTube. And I also wrote my little blog, The Making of Vegas and space which um tells the whole story. So it's there forever, my side of the story.
0: Well, before we head off into the evening, uh I would like to ask you because you are such a student of film and I know you see a lot of movies still. Have you seen any movies recently that inspire you or that you just really enjoy? Anything that's really
1: a Philip Ford approved motion picture. <laughs> Oh, God, that's a tough one. I still go out to the movies once a week, but there isn't a whole lot that I love. What have I loved recently? Um, of course, The Disaster Artist was, was, was wonderful and for obvious reasons. Um, that's the thing that pops out at me. Uh, it's not the best movie, but it's one of my favorites, mm. um, the, the new releases. I mean, I'm sure everyone's seen it and they can understand why. I'd heard of The Room forever, but never saw it. I knew what it was. I didn't feel like I needed to. But that Tommy Weezu story I see a bit of myself and my story in it. Yeah. You know, in that this was a cult movie that was done earnestly. And then, you know, the book came out and then... um, one movie star, you know, James Franco, wanted to turn that story into something, and maybe, you know, a few thousand people were acquainted with it, all of a sudden, 20,000 people were acquainted right. with it, and 20 million people, you know, 50 million people were acquainted with it. So, I guess I never really thought about it before, but I really identified with that story in a lot of ways in relation to the story I've just told you. Well, maybe there's a Vegas in space making of movie out there somewhere, someday, Duly note as I mentioned, there is a biography of Doris Fish forthcoming. Yeah. Um, my friend Craig Seligman, who wrote the uh, Examiner article in 1986, has finished a very exhaustively researched biography. He's mm-hmm. a writer and critic. Uh, he just finished it in February. He's uh, working with an agent now to find a publisher. Um, he spent 12 years researching Doris's life. He went to Australia several times. He went to Paris to visit, uh, interview friends of hers. He interviewed anyone who had ever met her. He interviewed her family, her brothers and sisters. Uh, So it's quite exhaustive. And I I, I believe it will be published. I saw Craig a few months ago and he's um, after spending 12 years on something. I said, what are you going to do with your life? And I said, I have no idea now. (laughs) But. um, He's trying to get it published. And he said, I'm 90% sure it'll be published. It might be an academic press, which I'm not very happy about. So we're a little chagrined that it's not um, happening, you know, as uh, quickly as we'd like. Because I'm really looking forward to seeing that. I've been waiting for that book for a while, too. Yeah, so. it's done. Okay.
0: Hopefully, hopefully, it's publishers who are listening to Dead for Filth, I'm sure some of you are out there, uh, please consider preserving this moment in, in history for us. Uh Normally, this would be the portion of the show where I ask you, where can people find you? But as you said, you do not exist really in social media. So please go watch Philip's YouTube uploads of all of his shows, catch up on on all of that, as well as your blog where you preserved your history of Vegas and space. You can't get in touch with me. You can't. (laughs) Which lends to the mystery, I believe.
1: Um, yeah, I suppose I'm not trying to be mysterious. Like I said, I just don't want to be bothered.
0: (laughs) Well, I'm glad that you were bothered today to come and join us because I love you and I'm so happy to have had the time to just sit uh, and just let you share this story because I think it's an important story, and this movie is very important to me and uh, your work is very important to me and when I knew that you were coming here, uh, I was you know excited to to bring you into the studio and just have a, a little dead for filth moment with one of my faves. so thank you so much. Thanks, Michael. This has been Dead for Filth. I'm Michael Varati, yours always in glam and gore. Good night. And good luck.